Welcome to Foundations of the Restoration podcast class. This is class number nine, where we start to take a look at temples, a major piece in the restoration, a major foundation of the restoration. In this particular class, we look at the main purposes of the temples. Why do we build them? Why do we go in them? What is the purpose of the ordinances inside the temple? We'll talk about getting out of the telestial world and into the terrestrial. And then the invitation that we receive in the temple to get out of the terrestrial world and get into the celestial. Everything in the temple is an invitation to let go of terrestrial and get into the celestial room. I want to remind you, we did first vision, identity of God, truth through the forms of the Book of Mormon, keys of the priesthood, which allowed us to to organize a church. Now, this is where it just, it can't be linear. It's just multifaceted. So one aspect, we saw the Kirtland Temple, where those three major keys were restored. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints becomes the birthright, responsible for Heavenly Father's children. And Moses came so we could gather them. Elijah came so that we could seal them. So Moses' keys allow us to do missionary work. And last week we talked about the why, the how, and the what do you receive. So now let's get to Elijah's keys. Um, So many ways we can go, and my mind is racing as to what do we do first. So what I wanted to do is, why are there temples? Why do we need temples? There's a lot of people who criticize the church for building temples and spending so much money on building temples. So why do we do it? A lot of people uh, feel like the church has created this exclusive club that certain people can and can't go to. Why are there temples? I want to do that first, and then we can talk about getting more out of the temple and the specific covenants of the temple, and I want to focus on the altar of the temple. It'll be one of the symbols that we do, but I want to focus on the altar of the temple. So why are there temples? So let's pause and have a big picture discussion about getting back to our Heavenly Father's presence. There are three, there are two major transitions we have to make as we transition into Heavenly Father's presence. Now, the problem is Christianity knows one. Christianity is very familiar with the first transition. What very few people understand is the second transition. So in the imagery of the temple, On our journey through mortality, we came into a fallen world. We start in a telestial world. That's our starting point. Because of the fallen world, we come into this fallen earth and we are fallen by our natures. We start as telestial. In the imagery of the temple, there is a telestial room. And you have to get out 
of the telestial room. The invitation is to get out of the telestial room. So transition number one is to get out of the telestial world and into the terrestrial world. That's step number one. The telestial world is the carnal world around us. It's the sensual, devilish. It's the natural world. Just watch the news. Drive around. You'll see people acting like animals. You'll see their telestial nature. Now, Heavenly Father comes along and says, you've got to give up that telestial nature. So transition number one is to come out of the telestial and into the terrestrial. In the symbolism of the temple, leave the telestial room and come into the terrestrial. Now, I would suggest all of this, the ordinances we perform to invite us to do that, occur in the chapel. Those are chapel ordinances. We perform ordinances in the chapel that are focused on getting you out of the telestial and into the terrestrial. So let's talk briefly about that. Let's talk about that transition. Now, I opened up, the, this is the baptismus font of this institute. This is also a chapel and it has all the ordinances of the chapel. And one of the main ordinances of a chapel is baptism. Now, if you, if you wanna put all these gospel pieces together, baptism is a rebirth. And there is the womb. There is the womb that you come out of. Symbolic of something dying. If you're gonna be born again, something has to die. And so we have to let go of all the telestialness in us. How much telestial can you take into the terrestrial world? Not one. If you're holding on to anything telestial, you have two choices. What are they? Let go or remain in the telestial room. There are no other options. You cannot carry telestial things into the terrestrial room. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what are the celestial things that we have to kill? What are the celestial things that we have to get rid of? How do you get out of the celestial world? Well, anciently, they didn't have multiple buildings. They had one building. They didn't go to church on one Sunday and then the temple on another day. They had one building. They couldn't build multiple buildings. So you'll see in their building both elements. So here we have the outer courtyard. Now this is the celestial room of the ancient temple. All of this is the celestial room. In order to come out of the celestial room and into the first of the temple rooms, here is the terrestrial room. There's a veil separating the celestial from the terrestrial. And then there's another veil. This is a cross section. There's another veil separating the terrestrial from the celestial. Every temple, even anciently, had a celestial, a terrestrial, and a celestial room. And your journey through the celestial into the terrestrial and then into the celestial is symbolic 
of coming into this world, giving up the telestial, and then learning to give up the terrestrial and get into the celestial. If you cannot leave behind terrestrial things, you will stay in the terrestrial world. That's how the Lord's going to determine the kingdoms of glory. It's not a judgment call he makes. It's what are you holding on to? Everyone who can't let go of celestial things will stay in the celestial world that will become a celestial kingdom. And if you can let go of celestial, but you can't let go of terrestrial, you will stay in a terrestrial room, which will become the terrestrial kingdom. It's really simple. If you can't let go of terrestrial things, you stay in the terrestrial world. So, both of these objects were designed to help you overcome the celestial. The first is the altar of sacrifice. The sacrifice of the natural man, the giving up of the animal inside you. So today we're going to offer a sacrifice. We're going to symbolically offer a sacrifice. I'm going to take my family. Now my oldest, when she was a little girl, I want you to picture I have my eight-year-old daughter. And I'm going to take her to the temple and we're going to offer her first sacrifice. I'm guessing no one in this room knows how to offer a sacrifice. So you do it with me. You come along and let's go to this spot in the Old Testament and let's offer a sacrifice. So if you want to follow along, find with me in the Bible dictionary under the word sacrifices. In the fourth paragraph, there is a list of six items. <coughs> now we could do this out of Leviticus. It might be better to do it out of Leviticus so you can see it in the text. But let's, we'll just use the summary. I think you all trust that the Bible dictionary will pull it legitimately out of the Old Testament. So Bible dictionary, sacrifices, fourth paragraph, there's a list of six. A list of six items. Here's how we offer a sacrifice. Ready? So I've got my eight-year-old daughter, and she and I are headed to the temple. Now, number one, tell me what the first one is. So this lamb, and now Ashley and I are going to bring a lamb. We've decided to bring a lamb. That's the animal we've chosen. And step number one. So number one, tell me what's the requirement here. Presentation of the lamb. Tell me what really has to happen here. This lamb, this animal, has to represent Christ. So step number one is we need to make sure the animal is a worthy representative of Christ. Did the lamb that we brought, does it represent Christ? We brought a lamb because it's white and it's innocent and it's sweet and wonderful and it hasn't done anything wrong. And so the priest looks at the lamb and says, yes, this animal is a worthy sacrifice of Christ. It represents Christ. So we pass the presentation. 
Now, this is where it gets weird for Latter-day Saints. And if you've never done this, you're going to feel a little weird. Tell me what you do next. What does my eight-year-old daughter do now? What is it? She lays her hands upon the head of the lamb. Ashley's going to lay her hands on the lamb. Tell me why. Dedicating it as her representative. So not only does the lamb represent Christ, but the lamb represents the animal in me. The telestial man. The liar, the cheater. The one that's motivated by pride and anger and hatred and lust. There is an animal inside you and there's an animal inside me. It was programmed that way so that I would have agency. One quick scripture. Someone turn to Jacob or 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16. I need someone to read this. If I don't have an animal inside me, I don't have agency. Someone read this. 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16 from Father Lehi. Raise your hand when you get there. Whitney, read it. Man cannot act for himself unless there are two enticements inside him pulling on his heartstrings. <coughs> I am part animal. And that animal cannot enter the Father's presence. It can't go any further than right there. It either stays in the celestial world or I kill it on that altar. And so, step number one, laying on of hands. My daughter dedicates the, the lamb. as the animal inside her. Do you all sense that peace inside you? We, we, great fiction always has that idea. I love the Lord of the Rings. I carry on my ring. I carry on my keys, the one ring. Because I think this is a symbol of the natural man. The more you put it on, the more it controls you. Gollum was completely controlled by this ring. He has lost his agency because he is completely controlled because the natural man controls him. And even our sweet Frodo. Frodo is not the hero. I love Frodo, but Frodo is not the hero. Because in the end, what was Frodo going to do? What would Frodo have done? I can't. I got to keep it. Who's the hero? Sam. Sam is the hero because Sam is the only one who carries the ring and never puts it on. The only way you can be free of the ring is to not put it on. And I carry that as a reminder of the animal inside me. Let me tell you plainly, you either kill that animal or that animal will kill you. There is no other choice. You either destroy the animal inside you or you stay in the celestial kingdom and that animal controls you. So now what does Ashley do? 
number three. Look at Crestley. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking up for one ring to their phone for $2,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, mine is not worth $2,000. Mine is the brass one that got, it has now been chipped, the gold has been chipped off. So. <laughs> no, I thought you were looking at number three. Who's got number three? Your eyes just went really big just at the right moment. Tell me what number three is. So after my daughter lays her hands upon the lamb, what happens next? The priest hands her the knife. Now tell me what my eight-year-old daughter is going to do when the priest hands her, her knife, the knife. Can you just picture her saying, Dad, what, Dad, why is he handing me the knife? Dad, why, why do I, what, what's the knife for, Dad? You have to kill the lamb. Tell me the look on her face. Tell me the look on my eight-year-old's face. Now, what would she probably say to me? What has the lamb done? The lamb hasn't done anything wrong. Why does the lamb have to die? The lamb hasn't done anything wrong. And so, first of all, Ashley and I are going to have a wonderful little discussion about why the lamb has to die. Either that lamb dies or you do. And then we're going to have a discussion about why the lamb has to die. Either that lamb dies or you do. Either the animal in our family dies or the animal in our family destroys us and we do. Which do you choose, Ashley? Now, do you think my eight-year-old daughter would remember that moment? I'm glad we don't offer animal sacrifice. I'm so grateful we don't. But I wish just one time I could take my family and do it once. Because I think my daughter would remember that for the rest of her life. And I would hope every time the natural man in her reared its ugly head, she would think about killing that lamb. You either kill the animal or the animal kills you. Okay? Next. What's number four? This is an odd one, right? Tell me what number four is. The sprinkling of the blood. Now, obviously, when it comes to Christ, that's an obvious one, right? That the reason... I have a Savior is because His blood was shed. His blood was sprinkled. He sweat great drops of blood from every pore. That's what I need to remember as I sprinkle the blood of the Lamb is the sprinkling of His blood. But the second one to me is one of the great symbols I need to remember that's all about becoming terrestrial. I am doing what with my sins? I am sprinkling them on Him. I am sprinkling my natural man on him. And so I sprinkle the blood on the altar. And I love to think of it this way. On that night when Jesus went into Gethsemane, I am positive he was wearing white. I just know he walked into Gethsemane wearing white. And knowing what happened in that garden, what color did he walk out wearing? 
So he went in wearing red, white and came out wearing red. Symbolically, I am meeting him in Gethsemane. He and I are going to have a meeting. What am I walking in wearing? I am, though your sins be as scarlet, I am covered in scarlet sin. And what am I going to do? The red of my scarlet sin. What am I going to do? I am going to sprinkle it on him and come out wearing that. Do you see that? Jesus went in wearing red. I went in wearing white. Jesus came out literally and figuratively wearing red. And I come out wearing white. Did I say that wrong? Sorry, you know what I meant. And hence I sprinkle. So are you sprinkling on Jesus? Are you, do you understand the doctrine of what happens to make you a terrestrial thing? Will you sprinkle the natural man on his sacrifice so that he takes it? So we sprinkle. All right, number five. Here's the most important step. What, is, what do we do now? So my daughter has killed the animal. She sprinkled the blood all over the altar. Well, the priest did that, my, not my daughter, but you get the idea. And now what do we do? We burn it. We burn the animal. And therein is the secret to killing it. If you're wondering how to kill the animal inside you, what do you do? What kills the animal inside you? Fire. Fire kills the animal. Now, this is the wow, this is what we should have sung. What should we have sung? The spirit of God like a fire is burning. So how do you make the animal go away? You, you fill your life with the Holy Ghost. You fill your life with the baptism of fire. If you fill your life with light and fire and Holy Ghost, it naturally makes the, holy, the animal go away. You burn the animal out of you. There's no other way. Someone turn quickly to Mosiah 3.19. Natural man is an enemy to God unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man. The only way you burn the animal, the only way the animal goes away is if you burn it with fire. So if you are not filling your life with Holy Ghost, if you are not burning it away by filling it with light and spirit, you, the animal is, is winning. The animal is controlling you. So the next thing we do is we burn. Now, what specifically, this will become important when we get into transition number two, but what specifically do we burn? We burn the hooves, the brain, the heart, the fat. Now, that's going to be very important in just a minute because what is it that I need to burn to become terrestrial? My insides, my heart, my thoughts, what I look at, just, to, just as a placeholder of what's coming. So we burn. And then number six, 
We eat. We take it home and we rejoice. We rejoice in the victory over the natural man. Now, that's how you offer a sacrifice. Today, in our day, we don't do that. Turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. When Jesus came, well, when he came to the Americas before he actually descended and spoke to them, 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 19. First, he ends animal sacrifice, right? Let's read that. He ends animal sacrifice, says, no more. I don't want any more animals. Someone read 19. Okay, no more animals. Instead, what's the new one? What's the new one? Verse 20. Lenny, read it. Okay, paraphrase it. Um, and you shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites. Okay, that's good. They, they didn't know. So we no longer have an altar of sacrifice. The altars in our temple are not so much symbolics of the altar of sacrifice. We in the church do not have an altar of sacrifice. Instead, we are to offer on the altar a broken heart. How is the baptismal font and the sacrament table a symbol of breaking my heart? Let's talk about breaking hearts. What does it mean to break your heart? If the Lord replaced it, now here's why, here's why I think it's a tragedy that we don't have animals. Do you think my daughter would remember offering an, a lamb on, at the temple? <clears throat> so how do I make the offering of her heart as meaningful as that? We don't have those discussions, do we? So what does it mean to offer my heart? What does that mean? What is a broken heart? Any thoughts? Let me give you my analogy. I, when I was a kid, had a neighbor who was a rancher. And he didn't break a lot of horses, but one time he was a, he was a healer. He was kind of a horse whisperer. He was an amazing guy. And one time, I vividly remember, we received a wild horse. I don't know where it came from. I don't know the story. I was just a kid. But we got a trailer with a wild horse in it, and it was bucking. And it was, it was obviously a wild horse. But that horse had a broken leg. And he wanted to save it. He was convinced he could save it. Now, when the horse came out of the corral, this is what it did, even with a broken leg. I'll never forget. It was one of the most frightening experiences of my life, watching that horse come out of the corral. Now, they had a rope around its neck. Now, that rope right there is the symbol for me of the sacrifice today. Tell me what that horse is doing with that rope. That is... Me and Heavenly Father who's trying to heal my broken leg. And I am resisting Heavenly Father. The natural man in me is pulling away from Heavenly Father. 
It does not want to do certain things. And I am pulling away. Now, if I am going to break my heart, I have to break this resistance. That has to break. To me, the symbol of a broken heart is what should I, what, what should I be able to do with that rope? And the horse would follow me. Could I lay that rope on my shoulder and the horse would follow me? That is my offering to Heavenly Father. I have to give up my rebellion, my pulling away from Him, my wanting to do it a different way. I love, I don't know if this is a typo or if this is intended, but I love when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's buried their weapons. What did Mormon write that they buried? You would think it would be weapons of war, weapons of war. But what he wrote is weapons of their rebellion. They had to lay down the weapons of their rebellion. That's a broken heart. So every single one of you, if I, can, if I can push a little bit, every single one of you is tugging away from God in some area of your life. There is a commandment and you're tugging away and you're pulling the other direction. Now, if you want to get out of the telestial room, break that rebellion. Break your heart and lay the rope on his shoulder and I will follow you. Now that will get you into the terrestrial world. So we have baptismal fonts, we have sacrament tables. What's the imagery here? We talk about baptism as a cleansing, but I don't see any cleansing imagery here. What do you see here? Death and burial. That's the imagery I see here is death and burial. When, it, when you walk into the sacrament room, if you, loose, if you relax your eyes a little bit, what does that table look like? There's a shroud and there's a dead body under there. I don't see these cute little wash your hands images. I see some significant something has to die inside of you. And every one of these chapel ordinances is an invitation to kill the telestial inside us all. Where, it is, it, where is it in the bread? What do we do with the bread? We break the bread. We don't start with pre-broken bread. Part of the sacrament is to break the bread. And what is he saying? Are you breaking your rebellion against me? Everything you pushed against me this week, are you breaking it? Or are you still holding on to the telestial world? Where is it in the sacrament or in the, in the water? I love that Jesus in Gethsemane was handed a cup and drinking it caused him to die. Therefore, he's handing me a cup and drinking it will cause my natural man to die. Liam?
Okay. Do you see the imagery of killing the natural man and letting it go? Okay. Good news, you've made some great progress. Bad news, you're halfway. Now, the whole, the whole news of the restoration, one of the great truths the restoration has brought is that that is half the journey. And there is one more journey to be made. We have to get out of the terrestrial room and into the celestial room. The goal of the temple, the goal of every temple is to end up where? From the telestial room into the terrestrial room into the celestial room. And in the Salt Lake Temple or in every other temple, we come out of, let's see if I have them. I put them somewhere else. Let me see if I can go pull them. Okay. I know I have them. There we go. There it is. Here's the telestial room. This is the Salt Lake Temple, telestial world. Symbolically, you live in this world. Now, the telestial world and the telestial kingdom are very different. The world we all journey through. Every one of us are journeying through the telestial room in a telestial world and holding on to telestial things. Now the invitation is come out. You've got to come out of the telestial room and you have to leave that animal behind. You can't take any of that animal with you. Now, lest we think that we're done, there is another room. We go into this beautiful terrestrial room and the Lord says what? Not the destination. You have to get out of the terrestrial room and get into this, get into the celestial room. Now, we go through a whole bunch of ordinances to do that. And this is why we need a temple. That's why we build temples to focus on a very different journey. What does it say on the outside of all of our chapels? Because why? There isn't anyone on earth that doesn't need to do this, right? Every one of you, come in, let's talk about this change. But would it be fair to those who have not yet made this transition to then invite them into this room? That would not be a blessing to them. That we need a place where we can go and focus on overcoming the terrestrial. Overcoming our natural tendencies to be terrestrial. Now this is where Christianity misses because they don't see this. They don't understand that there's another transition. They, see, they think this is the goal. Overcoming the natural man is the goal. And the Latter-day Saints understand, no, 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 that's half the goal. 
And so in our chapels, we usually don't have discussions about overcoming the terrestrial world. And if you go into the temple and you don't understand that the subject just changed, you're going to miss the discussion because the subject is overcoming the terrestrial. So let's talk about terrestrial sins. I guarantee every one of you could name dozens of these. How many of these could you name? Now that's the problem. Most people couldn't even tell me what a terrestrial sin is. And so how in the world do we begin to have the discussion about what needs to change if we don't even know what the problem is? So allow me to be incredibly rude and tell you how terrestrial you are today. And let's identify the terrestrial sins inside of us. So five minutes, five minute discussion on what's, the, what's a terrestrial sin. Turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very best place to show the difference between terrestrial, terrestrial and celestial. Now let's do Book of Mormon version. So let's do third Nephi chapter 12. Now, it's important that we read the Book of Mormon version because there's a missing beatitude in the New Testament that completely changes the setting here. Where is this? Where does the Lord set his Sermon on the Mount? Third Nephi chapter 12. Let's read verse 2 and 3. These verses are missing in the New Testament. Verse 2. More blessed are they who shall believe on your words, because ye shall testify that ye have seen me, and they know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe on your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and be baptized. So where does the Sermon on the Mount target? If you've been baptized, this whole sermon has what purpose? This. The Sermon on the Mount has this purpose. We've already made some progress. So listen to what Jesus says you've already done. So let's just jump to a few examples. Uh, 29. No. 22. 21. 21. Here's the old law. Here's what got you to where you are today. Here's the law you obeyed to get here. What was the law that got you out of telestial and into terrestrial? Don't kill. So telestial people are very violent. They harm you with their fists. They kick you. They bite you. They hurt you. They kill you. They strike children. They beat their wives. That's a very telestial act to be violent. People who have killed that natural man have come into the terrestrial world and I don't hurt people. I won't hurt you. I won't kick you. I won't bite you. I won't hit you. Okay, great. So now let me get you, get you out of the terrestrial world. Tell me what he says. I need you to focus on what happens inside your heart. I need you to control the emotion, the anger. I need you to change your mind and your heart. That gets you out of the terrestrial world. So name a terrestrial sin. 
Celestial sin would be, I hit you. Terrestrial sin, I hate you. I hit you in my mind. I hit you with my words. I hit you in my heart. I harbor resentment towards you. Now, every ordinance in the chapel is pushing us to make this transition. So can you think of a moment in the chapel that if you have anger towards someone, you can't participate? Do you see the terrestrial coming into the celestial? You cannot have anger in your heart and move into the celestial room. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do sexual transgressions. Okay, what got me to where I am? Verse 27, the law you obeyed to get to this point was don't commit the act. Committing sexual acts outside of the bonds of marriage is a celestial act. You are doing something celestial. Don't commit the act. Don't do it. Okay, I promise. I won't do it, Lord. I promise I won't do it. All right. Good job. Not doing it. Great job. So let me push you to the next level. What's the next one? You're thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop looking on someone and having those thoughts. So to do it, celestial. To not do it, but think about it, terrestrial. If I want to walk into the celestial room, how many of those thoughts can come with me? If those thoughts are in my head, I stay in the terrestrial room. I cannot walk into the the celestial room. You're beginning to see the difference? Uh, Let's do a difficult one. Adultery, I mean, divorce is a difficult one. Um, We often think that, well, if you're divorced, you can't be celestial. And that's not what he's saying here. Verse 31, it hath been written that whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. Let me say it this way. If a celestial man wants another woman, I'm married to that woman and I want that woman, what do I do? No, what do a celestial man do? He cheats. What does a terrestrial man do? The honorable thing, right? What's the honorable thing? I'll divorce you and marry her, and then it's within the bonds of matrimony. That's good and honorable. The celestial man? It's not that he doesn't divorce. I'm not, I don't think that's the idea. It's that the celestial man who's married to this woman doesn't look, doesn't let thoughts of her into his head and into his heart. You see the difference? Um, let's do the big one. Let's do, okay, here's one. Here's a good one. Verse 39. It hath been written an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, I only hurt you if you hurt me. That's a terrestrial attitude. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. But if you don't hurt me, I won't hurt you. I'll be fair and honorable. Jesus says what? That's not celestial. Celestial people do not return evil for evil. If you do evil for me to me, I will not do evil back to you. 
Because, verse 43, Telestial people, I would suggest to you, love only one person, themselves. Terrestrial people love easy people. They love the people who love them. They're nice to the people who are nice to them. They hate the people who hate them. That's fine. That's fair. That's terrestrial. Celestial people do what? They love the ones that are difficult to love. They love when love isn't deserved. In a marriage, it's easy to love my wife when my wife loves me. But will my wife love me when I don't deserve her love and I've said something horribly insensitive? Or does my wife get angry because I was insensitive? What law would she be? What law would I be living if I got angry because she did something rude? I'm living a terrestrial law. She got angry. I got angry. Celestial people pick the moments when love is not deserved to love. That's celestial. Now, do you see the idea? So what we need in the church is a place I can go that teaches me how to give up the terrestrial person inside me. It teaches me to obey and to give up. It teaches me to let go of terrestrial things. Now that's going to bleed into our symbolism. When we come back next week, we're going to take the symbols of the temple and I want to show you how it's pointing in this direction. Let me just do, let me do one. Okay, let me do one. Um, one, one of the most important symbols you'll run into in the temple is this, uh, way too many pictures. The symbol of the compass. Those of you who have eyes to see will recognize the symbol of the compass. When I say compass, you probably think this, right? But what shape does the compass take? This is the shape. The symbol of the compass is a drawing symbol. Now tell me what you do with a compass. You draw circles. So every time there's a circle in the temple, it's because a compass drew it. Now, how do you draw a circle with a compass? This, you have a center point. Every time you draw a circle with a, a compass, you put down a center and you, what's the word? Circumscribe around it. You circumscribe around a center point. Again, the whole symbolism is trying to point me here. So there is a moment in the temple where we make a circle. We form a circle. What is the center point that drew that circle? An altar. And who was offered on the altar? 
That altar is the sacrifice of the lamb. Now, you and I stand in a circle. Why would we stand in a circle? What are the advantages of standing in a circle? I can see everyone. Now, do you see the invitation to be to come out of the terrestrial world? The invitation is that as I see everyone in this circle, I see them through what? I see them through the atonement. What drew the circle? What was the center point that circumscribed the circle? So if I'm going to stand with you in a circle, what's the invitation? To see you through his atonement. Do you see the people in your life, including yourself, through his atonement? Or do you see the raw? The covenant of the temple is to see them through him. Now, here's an example. The veil of the temple we'll talk about is a symbol of Jesus. When I stand at that veil to be with God, how much of me can God see? How much of me can God see as we stand at the veil? Can he see me? Can't see me. How much of me can he see? Can he see my hand? Can he? Why? It's his hand that. How much of me can he see? So he sees me completely through the veil. Jesus see, or God sees me through Christ. And I am invited to see you through Christ. Now, do you see in that ceremony, in that covenant, an invitation to come out of the terrestrial? Now, I know I've done this a thousand times. I know, especially James and Whitney have heard this probably a billion times, but allow me to just one more. When Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him, a sinful woman came in and started to bathe his feet with her tears. The, the Pharisee that had bidden him, I love the language here. The Pharisee that had bidden him, whoops, I went too far. So this woman who's a sinner is touching Jesus. When the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, He spake within himself saying, why is this man even letting her touch him? She's a sinner. Tell me what he saw. Jesus turns to Simon and says, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he kind of rebukes him. And then he says, he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. Four words. What did he say? Seest thou this woman? What did Simon see? What did Jesus see? Now, as I stand in that circle, as I symbolically am in a circle with you in this class, do I see it? Or do I see you?
I covenanted with God in the temple to see you through him. And that's a very different way to live my life. And not very many people do. The invitation to change your heart, come out of the terrestrial, every symbol, every covenant, everything in the temple is an invitation to come out of the terrestrial room and into the celestial. So next week, let's tackle a whole bunch of these symbols and ask ourselves, what is the invitation? What's the terrestrial tendency we're invited to let go of and become celestial? Do you see the power of, do you see why we need temples? We can't do that in the chapels. We have to do it in a place filled with those who are on the same journey so we can focus on terrestrial things. I bear you my testimony. We've got to learn how to learn in the temple. We can't just go there and have a good experience. We have to go to the temple and see the need to get out of the terrestrial world. And what do I need to do to be less terrestrial? And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for joining us for Foundations of the Restoration podcast class. This has been class number nine. Would you ponder this week and maybe discuss with a friend or with me or with the class, what are the invitations that you see in the temple or associated with the temple to let go of terrestrial things, to get out of the terrestrial world? Can you share a specific invitation that has caught your attention to be less terrestrial and more celestial?